Welcome back to the LFDC podcast. My name is Pastor Jesse. This week we continue in Ephesians chapter 5 on biblical womanhood. We want to uh, definitely start getting Sunday school ended sooner. We're not doing great at that. But uh, we can get into things a little quicker. So I'm going to try to power through what we have today. I have a lot to talk to you about. Um, but before I do, I did want to share something that was on my heart, just pressed my heart last minute of that last song. Um, and you might be thinking, this has nothing to do with the song. You'd be right. That song is beautiful. It's one of my favorite um, songs uh, that we do here at church. And uh, I just love that. I will trust in you. Let my testimony be for your glory. You know, I think American Christianity has really got that backwards where we think our testimony is for health and wealth and prosperity. You know, no, our testimony is for the glory of God and the glory of God alone. Uh, through every trial, through every circumstance, whether in health and wealth or uh, death and despair. <laughs> it's for the glory of God either way. And so we got to keep that in mind. But what I wanted to share with you just briefly, two things that I think... To keep in mind, in the month of June, I'm trying to slightly sometimes stay relevant with what's going on in our culture. I, sometimes I forget and I just go right into the Bible. But I do know that we are in the month of pride, right? And the month of pride is for the LGBTQ community. One thing I wanted to say in reference to this real quick is be sure to pray for them more than you talk negatively about them or post about them this month. Please pray for them. Pray for their salvation. Pray that they come to know Christ more than you attack them. Okay, that's first and foremost. Uh, and secondly, we have to remember to keep the hypocrisy from our tongue. Do you know how many men, grown men, teenage men, doesn't matter, probably, even in this church, but in American Christianity, at an overwhelmingly high rate, wrestle with pornography? Right? Men wrestle with pornography. And yet they'll be the first one saying, oh, I can't stand the LGBTQ community. Hypocrites. Hypocrites, yes. Women too. So I'm not saying, hey, if you watch porn, you can't call truth truth. I'm just saying be real with yourself. Come on. Don't be a closet porn watcher and then scream at LGBT community the whole time. Cece's looking at me like, wow, you're really going at him. Get him. Cece was like, you need to stop just saying teenagers in porn because we all know that adults struggle with porn too. I was like, yeah. Just adults don't like to be called on it. And women as much as men. And women as much as men. The reality is it is an epidemic in our society, in America, and I would be I would be not doing my job if I were to just skip over the fact that um, pornography is inundated in our culture. We are a hyper-sexualized culture in which people think who they sleep with is the sole purpose of their identity and why they live. Give me a break, <laughs> right? Let's just be honest. That is not the entirety of who you are and your identity, right? And so who you want to sleep with is really the least of my concerns. Yet in the month of June, we paraded around. This is who I like to sleep with. Okay, that's, that's very cool, right? But I just want us to be honest with ourselves and look in the mirror and say, do I also have issues? Yes. Let's, let's treat this community with, with charity, with patience, with kindness, and respect, not their lifestyles, but respect the, the, the fact that they are people in need of God's salvation, in need of Christ, in need of the message of, of Christ, the good news, right? We should be preaching the good news. We shouldn't be preaching um, to get out of their sin. And one thing that I think is, it, it's up for debate, I guess, but I think we need to preach Christ before we preach the laws of Christ. Um, you can't hold a sinner up to the standard of Christ and say, live like a Christian. That's right. They're not Christian, and even Christians don't live like Christians. So we, we need to look at Christians and say, you live like a Christian, and look at the world and say, you need Christ. And once you get Christ, yes, we will call you to start looking like a Christian, okay? <laughs> All right, with saying that, uh, we are going to get into Ephesians chapter 5. Today, we are only going to cover a couple of verses. But we are going to go all over the place, and we are going to talk about biblical womanhood. <coughs> biblical womanhood. And now you may think, what gives Jesse the right to talk about womanhood? He is a man. I will tell you what gives me that right, the Word of God. The Word of God gives us everything we need to know in reference to womanhood, manhood, childhood, servanthood, 
it gives us everything we need. And so this is not me getting up here and telling you what I think or feel women should be. This is me telling you what I see in the Word of God. And so I will have you go through it with me. And so keep in mind, I say this because there's a, there's a good chance that some people, especially in the culture we live in today, view the biblical role for women as misogynistic. Right? And so we want to keep in mind the culture, and we want to keep in mind what was going on in the culture of that time. But we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5, and I do want to recap what we spoke on last week, starting in verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, Singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God, to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, I want to recap this because we are going to come back to this passage here and there. And verse 15 is the beginning of a new stanza in which Paul is addressing. So these next few verses we get into, in fact, the rest of the chapter, is all meant to align with verse 15 on. Right? And so we, we understand that this verse 17, as we talked about, or verse 16, sorry, no, verse, verse 18, I'm going back and forth. Verse 18, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. We talk about uh, uh, filled as if wind in the sailboat is in, in order to go. This word is best translated as be being filled, be kept filled, right? And so a, a Christian life is a life yielded and continually filled by the Spirit, day in and day out. Now, I do not, I'm not negating um, moments and momentous times when the wind comes in stronger than you've ever experienced, and it empowers you in such a way that you can do something for the gospel of Christ. I'm not negating that experience, but the Christian life is a, a life of continually be being filled by the Spirit. Okay, so we continue on here, verses 22. Wives, likewise, to your own husbands. Your translation may say submit. It may have it in italics. That is because submit technically is not there. Wives, aha, I do not have to submit. Have no worries. It's elsewhere in the Bible, too. And it is there. But it says, likewise, wives, to your husbands. Now, this is referencing back to verse 21, where it says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he's saying, likewise, wives, as the church submits to one another out of reverence for Christ, you too do this, submit in reverence to your own husbands as to the Lord. That's pretty strong language. Verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. It's pretty strong language. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Nobody else, if I came in here and said, yes, Jesus Christ, he, he chooses what happens in this church. Jesus Christ is the head of this church. He is the shepherd of this church. The elders are only under shepherds to Christ and his will and the word of God. Nobody would have issue with that. We align ourselves with Christ's vision, not our own vision. And so in the same way, uh, as a church submits itself to Christ, a woman should submit itself to her husband, or herself, to her husband, sorry. Verse 24, now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. So, first thing I want to address is not everyone in this room is married. So you may think, well, I need to write this word off right away because this doesn't matter to me. First and foremost, it's the word of God, so it does matter. Secondly, whether or not you're married or want to be married, that's a different discussion. So if you are single, here's my encouragement to you. Pursue marriage. Unless you have the gift of singleness, in which singleness is not, oh, this is a gift, I need to grin and bear it. No, singleness is the desire to not have a spouse. It's very rare. That is the gift of singleness. The gift of singleness is, you know what? Jesse, I really just don't want to get married. Great, that's the gift of singleness. It's very rare. But if that's not you, and you burn with passion, and you want to be married, and you want a spouse, and you want to one day have that type of life, then you shouldn't sit idly by. And we're going to get more into that here, here soon. But you should desire to be married. And if you're desiring to be married, 
then this applies to you, whether you're a man or a woman. Because if you're a woman, this is what I'm aspiring to be. If you're a man, you're saying, this is what I'm looking for in a wife. Okay? So this now applies to everyone, unless you're the, you know, couple people with the gift of singleness, maybe. But even then, it is good to know so that you can train up other people. Um, if you're a man or a woman, you can train up the younger generation behind you to, want, to look for. Right? And this, once again, is always the word of God. Um... Uh, due to time, I'm trying to decide where, which, which sections to skip um, in my notes. And so uh, I, w- I do want to say Christians are prone to follow the habits of our culture, right? We don't see anywhere in the Word of God to withhold or abstain from marriage unless um, we desire to, in 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about, I wish you could be single, but if you can't, don't do it, right? It's better to get married than to burn with passion. And so I think it's important to note that our culture says, don't worry about getting married, pursue your career, get rich, get healthy, get fancy cars, and then maybe one day think about getting married. And by then, you're old enough, you're like, well, I don't even know if I really want kids anymore. And our culture also tells us not to have a lot of kids. Have you guys noticed that? Because they're worried about the population of the earth. And so people will say, well, I'm only going to have one kid because we need to decrease the population of the earth. And some families are like, no, I want to have four or five. And the one guy who says, I'm going to have one, thinks he's morally superior because I'm only having one. I'm bettering the society and the future of the world because I'm choosing to have less children. Um, and there's, there's a lot in the culture that tells us to have less and less children. In fact, they're feeding us, um, right? They're feeding us uh, what they call is, I'm making sure this is working, but I don't think it is. They're feeding us women at a young age, teenagers, they're, they're putting in 13-year-old hands nowadays, and saying, here's your birth control. What is your birth control? As we found out, there's a very high chance that it is not only keeping you from getting pregnant, it is killing anything if it does happen to get pregnant, or if you do happen to get pregnant. So we have to be very, very careful with our birth control. And we do want to also be very, very careful with abortion, right? Abortion plagues our culture, especially in America, where we see people getting abortions just for the fun of it, right? I saw this, uh, if you guys know the Cultish podcast, um, they talk about cults. They're uh, just a sub-ministry off Apologia Church uh, in Arizona. And they just talk about cults, different cult groups. But one video they shared on their Instagram a couple weeks ago was this woman crying, saying, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant, I don't know what to do. And then she laughs, pours some wine, and says, just kidding, I know exactly what I do, I already called the office. That's our culture. Our culture desires to kill. And not only just, I mean, you read Proverbs, okay? They, they, they laugh and, and are merry and skipping down on their way to just kill and be evil, right? That is the culture we live in. So please, if you have to use the culture to defend your stance on why you are the way you are or why this is the way it is, you're already lost, okay? Do not use the culture to ever defend anything about your life because the culture is evil. It is the word of God. And if you don't find it in the Word of God, you should reevaluate some things. Okay. I've said what I want to say on this slide. Yeah, we're not going to get into some of these other things. Um, in verse 22, we see the word submit, or technically in verse 21. And this, this word submit literally means to place under. To place oneself under. So we want to talk about mutual submission, sure. Um, but things get hard when you're just one-upping each other and placing each other under, place each other under, place. I'm under you. No, I'm under you. No, I'm under you. I submit to you. No, I submit to you. No, I submit to you. We understand that there is mutual submission in the kingdom of God. We understand that we are all to submit to one another out of reverence for Christ, verse 21. However, when push comes to shove, someone has to stop being the one who gets put under. And that's the man. And why is it the man? It's because he is physically the stronger vessel. It has nothing to do with your moral intellect, your uh, spiritual capacity. It has nothing to do with those things. It has nothing to do with your, your smartness. We know most wives in this room are smarter than their husbands. We know that, okay? Right? <laughs> the men are like, don't say that. Amen. It's true. Wives can be smarter. They can be spiritually superior. They can be, um, but at the end of the day, God designed us men to be physically stronger and thus also in his word, and even if you look back at the curse uh, of Adam and Eve, you see that men are to provide. And so thus they're made physically more dominant. 
So in 1 Peter chapter 3, I want to cross-reference this because I think something that is really bad in our culture is we say, oh, you only have to submit to your husband if he is a good Christian. And that's not what the Word of God says. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if they do not obey the Word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives. So submitting to your husband is not a conditional request. It is a request even if your husband does not follow the word. Right? And so we talk about, even Rachel's talked about in the past, if a wife submits herself to her husband, push comes to shove, the wife is responsible for her submission. The husband is responsible for the action. Right? So if I lead my wife and myself down the wrong path, I answer to God for that, and I pay the consequence for that. The fault lies on me. Now, if I'm about to take us down the wrong path, and yet my wife retaliates and says, no way, Jose, I'm not going down that path, and I'm going to go this way, she is already in sin because she refused to submit. As crazy as that sounds, that's the logic we have in the Word of God. Now, the real reality is, it's not like men should be lording it over their wives, and we're going to really hit men hard here soon, next week, and uh, probably the week after because it's Father's Day, and why not? So women, be thankful you're only getting one sermon. Men, you're getting one and a half, depending on how long Steve goes, probably two. So men need it. So it says, even if they do not obey the word, they may be won without, the, without a word by the conduct of their wives. So why do wives submit to their husbands? To win them over. And so, even if they're not following the word of God to win them over, when they see your respectful and pure conduct, it says in verse 3, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and putting on of fine gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Not a lot of people read that slowly with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. Beautiful. Which is, in God's sight, very precious. Vodi Bauckham said, If my son comes home with a loud and boisterous woman, I will tell him no. Now, I don't know if I'd go to that extreme that Vodi goes. Vodi's a very extreme guy. If you guys know Vodi Bauckham. But he said, they can, be, they, can have, they can be wild, they can have their personality, they can have fun. That's not what I'm talking about but I want them to be meek. And if you really study meekness, it's about being kind and reverent and respectful. So when you bring home a girl, she's like, oh yeah, I was back-talking the teacher the other day. Vodi Bakum would say, no way. If you back-talk your teacher, you're not dating my son. Right? I'm just being honest. I, I, I listened to quite a few different people's perspectives on this, and Vodi had some of the most extreme for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their husbands. As Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. So it, it says that Sarah calling her husband Lord was a good thing. Now we could get into the nuances of what Lord, we, we're not talking about Lord in the sense of uh, he is my savior. We're not talking about Lord in the sense of he is God. We're talking about in the sense of he is my boss. When we talk about servanthood, which we'll get into in Ephesians chapter 6, I believe, when we get into servanthood, this is really much more applicable now today to employment, right? You have a boss. If you're a woman with a job, you have a boss. He is your Lord. Whether or not you like that language, that is more or less true. He is your boss. Um, and now here, here's the thing. I actually wanted to point this out. In verse, verse 1 of chapter 3, it says, likewise, meaning in the same regard as what I just told you, be subject to your own husbands so that even if they do not obey the word. So even if you're struggling with this idea of, well, conditional respect, let me give you the likewise. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 18, servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. So he's telling slaves, even if you have an unjust slave owner, Endure sorrows while suffering unjustly and submit to them. 
That's pretty strong language. And Paul says, likewise, likewise, women, su be subject to them. Be subject to your husbands in the same way as this slave person I just told to go endure sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20, for what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. That is strong language that's being presented. And I don't think in our culture we ever really look at these as deep as we need to. We just look at the culture and say, oh, this is what the culture says marriage looks like. This is what the culture tells me marriage should be like. This is what the culture says about men and women, rather than looking at the Word of God. And so in Philippians 2, we see this example of what submit means, okay? Philippians chapter 2, verse 2 is where I'll start. I know I'm jumping all over the place, and we got a lack of time, so we must be quick. Philippians chapter 2, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, right? This is unity. Having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. That is to place oneself under. So when we talk about mutual submission within the church, it's, I mean, read this and just think about, don't even think about marriage for a second. Think about just a church. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full, of full accord and of one mind. That's what I talk about, about being one accord, one mind. Acts chapter 2 as well. We see this in, in Pentecost. We see this in the upper room. We see this all laced throughout the New Testament. Be of one mind. Be of one accord. Do nothing. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That. It's written in scripture, do nothing from selfish ambition. That, in our culture, are you kidding me? Well, I just really, I was really craving um, to go watch the movies, but, ah, but brother so-and-so needs me to help move. Don't ask Paul what he thinks you should do, okay? Maybe ask a cultural, cultural Christian in America, and they say, oh, dude, you know, just go watch the movies. I'm not against boundaries. I'm for healthy boundaries. You ask me and my wife, we're for boundaries. But it needs to not be out of selfish ambition or conceit, right? This needs to be something where you're prioritizing something. My boundaries <coughs> are because I need to first care for my family before I care for the church. And in fact, if I don't care for my family and I don't raise up strong biblical kids, then I can't be an elder anyway, okay? If I fail my family, then I had no right to be a pastor, and so I believe in boundaries. It's about prioritizing my family in a place in which I understand I have to prioritize them. Right? But I don't do things out of selfish ambition in the sense of, well, I really want to be the next Stephen Furtick, so... Right? That's not it. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. That is hard to do. <laughs> right? That is so hard to do. Counting other people more significant than yourself. Do you know why I study the word the way I do? It is not because I want to get smart. It's because I feel like I'm failing you if I don't. And I have to just stick and stay true, loyal to the word of God. And I, I even sometimes I'm like, ah, oh, man, I just, a little later, a little more, a little longer. And once again, this isn't for me. This isn't for pride or anything like that. And I know that knowledge puffs, and so you have to be very balanced and have this really fair perspective. But it's like, I want to steward the word of God with excellence because I want the body to be better than I am. I do this for them, right? And so when we have a gift in the body, and I, I get into the gifts all the time because that's just my heart. But when you have a gift and ability, that's saying, I have this gift and ability, and the church is more important than I am, so I'm going to use my gift and ability to help the church, to benefit the church. That is the purpose of your gift. And if you don't use it for that regard, then you are missing the mark. Verse 4, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Right? It's not saying that you can't look to your own, your own interests. It's just saying, weigh other people more important than yourselves. Look to your interests, but look to the interests of others, and decide what is most important right now. Is my career more important? Or is my family more important? Is me making more money more important? Or is my kid struggling in school more important? This, this American dream is not a Christian dream. I hope you guys know that. Like, it's not a Christian dream. The American dream is actually 
very uh, carnal, very worldly. Like, get rich, um, buy a big house, buy a boat, live it up, have kids, have a dog, barbecue on the 4th of July, light your fireworks, love America, be patriotic. It's the American dream. Christendom is a call to self-denial. Saying no to yourself over and over and over again. And yes to others. Way more often than you wish. But slowly but surely, as you yield yourself to the Spirit, it becomes a joy to do so. You think, how is this possible? Well, in Ephesians chapter 5, it says, be being yielded to the Spirit. Be being filled by the Spirit. Kept filled by the Spirit. So how is this type of submission even possible? You are be being filled by the Spirit. This doesn't happen naturally. This isn't just a natural thing. And so we continue. Uh, we all must submit to one another. Same language. Uh, the same language that's used when it says submit to the government is the same language it uses here. Submit to one another. The same language it uses submit to your elders because they have to give an account for you is the same language it says submit to your husbands. Submission is riddled throughout the New Testament, and it's all about placing people's um, needs above your own. Right? And supporting the cause. The cause of what? Christ, the church. Let me ask you something. Do you believe that righteousness or Christian living or true Christians can be passed from one generation to the next, to the next, to the next? Or do you think, ah, it's just chance. My kids might turn out, they might not. Heaven forbid. There's a case study uh, I sent to a few of you guys in which it's just a mind case study. It wasn't actually completed or anything like that. But in which he presented the idea. He said, if the church... A hundred years ago, stopped worrying about evangelism, which I'm not saying that they should because he believed in evangelism. But he said, if they stopped worrying about evangelism and only took care of their kids and raised their kids in Christ and their kids served Christ, every single one of them, they raised them completely, fully, and none of them fell away, would the church be larger or smaller today? It would be larger. It would be way larger. Why? Because the American dream has ruined the family, the biblical model for a family. What you see in culture is not the biblical model for a family. And I think we need to remind ourselves that continually. It is not. So spirit-filled people do three things that we mentioned in Ephesians chapter 5 before we got into verse 22. It said they worship, they are thankful, and they submit. And I said some hard things last week. I said if you don't like to worship, you're not filled with the spirit. If you're not thankful and grateful for where you are in life and content with the things you have and, and grateful that you're even grafted into the vine, then you're not filled with the Spirit. Now, I'm not saying you're not sealed to the Spirit. That's a different thing. Sealed to the Spirit just means you're saved. I'm saying you're not filled with the Spirit, which is a lifestyle. And then if you don't submit to one another and submit to other people, meaning placing their priorities above your own and respecting them in such a way, then you're not filled with the Spirit. Right? So when we talk about a Spirit-filled church... Well, that church, they sing hymns, and they're grateful to God, and they submit to one another. That is a spirit-filled church, according to Ephesians chapter 5. Yet, most churches don't experience this. Most churches would rather sit around playing their secular music, complaining about things, and saying, no, oh, my time is more important than your time. That is the opposite of a spirit-filled person. So, you know, the elders, and we've talked about secular music. We're like, well, there's nothing wrong with secular music. We can't go at somebody and say, you can't play secular music. There's, a, there's nothing wrong with it. It's just of the culture. It's of your own self. It's of the flesh, right? But it's saying a spirit-filled person will desire to sing praise songs, will desire to just be thankful and grateful continually, will desire to submit to one another, right? So when we talk about a spirit-filled church, that's what I'm looking for. I'm not looking for tongues and prophecy. Those are gifts. That means the Spirit's working through you. So we do not want to live according to our own agenda, uh, that will just reap a harvest of pride. You live for yourself your whole life, you're just a proud person. Self-glorification will haunt you. Uh, we want to look at a few more things I want to talk about. Um, and we're going to get into Titus chapter 2. And I, I'm going to start talking a lot faster. Okay, So hopefully you're with me. Sunday school. We have Sunday school at this church. I really was excited about it. Sunday school happened to start in England a long time ago. It was not first in America. It was first in England. When the children worked in the factories, there were no child labor laws. 
The children have small hands, they can help them build things, and parents needed the money, so they sent their kids to the factory instead of to school. They said, we need money, go to school, or go to work, right? And we even have people in our lineage that stopped going to school at 10, 11 years old, and started working, working jobs, just 100 years ago. That's not that long ago, right? And so you have Sunday school was this thing where they took Sundays and said, hey, this is your day off. We're going to use the Bible to teach you literacy. Not, not, not even just the Bible or Christian, Christianity or Christian living. It's just literally to make kids literate because they didn't go to school Monday through Friday. So that's how Sunday school started. One of the biggest outcries against Sunday school, can you guess what it is? The Christian leaders were said, we can't do Sunday school. We can't keep this forever. This cannot be a thing we, we do forever. Why? They were worried that the family would stop catechizing their kids. And I think the fact that most Christians wouldn't even know what catechizing means demonstrates the point that we stop catechizing our kids, right? And I'll be honest. This dude's like, should I know what catechizing means? Right? I'll be honest. It wasn't until about a year ago that I started learning catechisms. It was when we were at home with Luke and he was a newborn. We started studying uh, Christian parenting and Christian living and really looking into things. And you're thinking, oh, that's just what the Catholics do. No, catechizing is about teaching your kids through a series of Q&A questions so that they can understand the gospel message, they can understand the Bible, they can understand who is God. What is the Trinity? Who is the Holy Spirit? How are you saved? Those are questions that kids should be able to answer by five years old. I'm just being honest. I'm being completely honest. Like, if Luke doesn't know to answer, like, how is one saved by five, you guys can get, come and get mad at me. I'm giving you credit right now. Come and get mad at me. Actually, my wife. We'll get into that. <laughs> and me, because I didn't hold up my side of the bargain, I guess. Um, and so they send these kids, and they start creating Sunday school. And the problem was, they said, parents will stop catechizing their kids because they'll just assume, hey, the church is going to teach them, so we don't need to. Look around. That's the culture we live in. I don't need to teach my kid about the gospel. I don't need to teach them the Bible. The church does that. They go to church twice a week. That's plenty. No, parents are called to teach their kids. Right? And so we even look at the youth movement. Youth group. Oh, youth group. Yeah, youth movement. That's even newer. That came from the Jesus movement. That was only about 50 years ago. So the youth movement again. This is a modern American construct. This is not a Christian biblical construct. You know the disciples of Christ were teenagers, right? You know, Timothy was probably younger than me as a pastor. The age segregation came about from Darwin, Darwinianism. I'm going to struggle with that. Darwin, in, Darwinian. I was saying it last night just fine, Cece. I was talking to her about it. It came from Darwin. Darwinianism. I can't say it now. I don't know why. I'm just like tongue-tied. It came from Darwin, okay? The evolution guy. So age segregation came about from Darwin. It's not even just a anti-biblical perspective, it's a Darwin perspective, right? And so I'm not saying we're gonna, oh, we can't have kids' classes anymore, we can't have youth classes anymore, we can't segregate, we can't separate by age. I'm not saying that, I'm just saying that kids and adults and teenagers, we should all be in this together, right? The only reason we do separate is because we know there's, we gotta fix some things, we gotta get the teenagers to where they need to be. I mean, you look at the disciples in the Bible, right? Giselle's like, don't look at me. Hey, they had Jesus. They did pretty good, and one out of 12 even messed up. So, I mean, was that Jesus' fault? I don't know, you know. Getting to some real deep theology there. We want to look at this. The, the youth movement was an American construct, not a biblical construct. And so we don't, want to, we don't want to look at these things and think, oh, well, the church will teach the kids, and the church will teach the youth group. That's not even a thing, okay? That's not a biblical thing, at least. And then we have to look at the feminism movement, right? It wasn't too long ago either. And what did that cause? Just a whole bunch of women who wanted to be men, right? It wasn't about women being women or women being equal with men. Nothing in the Word of God dictates that women are not equal with men. In fact, if you go back to the Hebraic Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, all the other laws of the other kingdoms in this time frame, back in the Old Testament, you're talking about Mosaic Law, all of them started to crumble and failed the test of time, but the Mosaic Law held up. It was actually considered the most fair to slaves, the most fair to women, the most generous to all parties involved. 
And it held up through the test of time. And then Christ came in, and he didn't abolish the law, but he fulfilled the law and pointed back to the Old Testament and said, all of these laws we gave you were for two points, love God and love neighbor. And now, guess what? The New Testament law, it's held up 2,000 years, and it's still going strong. We have more Christians in the world today than we did 2,000 years ago. 2,000 years ago, there was a handful of them. And they were all in Jerusalem. They were all Jews. Right? Christianity has grown. Um... I can't get too into this movement right now because we have too much to cover in Titus. So Titus chapter 2, and this is, this is the passage I'll stay in and, and finish in. I'm not going to get into 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or Proverbs 31. You have been spared. 1 Corinthians 11, Sophia, man, you just got to start wearing that head covering, you know? She's like, what? Read it. And then ask me about the context and I'll help you understand that. You don't have to wear a head covering, but people do nowadays. Cece and I studied it. We really did. And Cece's like, you know, I just, I'm not going to wear a head covering. And I'm like, yeah, I don't want you to. And then we studied it more and we're like, okay, we found some good rebuttals to some of the arguments and we're good. Okay, sounds good. You know, that was a while ago. He was like, what? Why would you wear? We get not wearing head coverings from our culture. <laughs> it's not from the Bible because the Bible actually tells men to not cover their heads and women to cover their heads. Anyway. We just got to understand culture and context and how the Bible translates to today and, and how we, you know, it's a give and take. It's really, you got to be careful. Older women, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior. If you do a top-to-bottom study on the word reverence, you will find that women are to be meek, reverent, quiet-spirited, out of a desire to worship God, refusing to draw attention to themselves in a desire to demonstrate propriety. We should not be selfish women. We should respect, revere, honor those around us as women, right? And so this is, this is what Bodhi said about it. Conduct yourself in a way that brings honor to God and not attention to yourself. That is reverent behavior. Your behavior is modeling a respect for God, a respect for your husband, and that does not draw attention to yourself, but rather says, how can I bring glory to my husband and God in my behavior? You're all good. I'm looking through my notes here real quick. Um... I'm just, sorry guys, I'm debating if I should even go over this. 1 Timothy 2 says, Likewise also that women should adorn themselves in respectable peril with modesty and self-control, not with braided and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. Right? And so that's in respect to, at least we would, as egalitarians take it as husband and wives in the home, the husband has the final say. So what aspect, and, and we want to look at the adorn themselves with respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. What aspect do you draw attention to? Right? The totality of a, of a godly woman is asking herself, in my behavior and in my dress and in my life, where do I draw attention? Where is the attention being drawn? And a Christian who is being filled with the Spirit will begin to say, well, I want to draw attention to God. I want to draw attention to my testimony. I want to draw attention to things that glorify God. And we're going to get into something here a little deeper. But so many young women, they yearn for men's approval. And the only way they know how to get it is to reach into the most abased part of a man's mind, their lust. Women don't dress immodestly just because, I don't know, it's just what I do. It's because there's something in them that's found lacking. I need approval. I need attention. I need something. And 99% of the time, I'm willing to bet that it's because 
the father stopped giving them the attention and the affection and the approval and the affirmation that they needed. So I don't look at a young, immodest woman and say, ah, man, she is just a mess, and I can't believe that's the way she is. I look at her and say, she's probably broken because she does not have the approval at home she needs. Right? So we must be careful with our attire. And there's more I'll say to this, but I'm, I'm going to get into Titus chapter 2 and finish this real quick. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to be able to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and their children. Wait, back up. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands. Wait, why would older women need to train the younger women how to love their husbands and children? And this is what I was talking about this morning. Isn't this intuitive? Why on earth would an older woman need to come to CC a younger woman and say, this is how I will, I will help train you to love your husband. I will help train you to love your children. You ask any new mom, I love my kid. I love them. Nothing can, it's an inseparable bond. So why would an older woman be commanded to teach and train a young woman how to love their husband and their children? Not just their husband, heaven forbid. I mean, young women probably can say, yeah, I need some help learning how to love my husband. He's a knucklehead, right? See, see, she's like, yep. But love children too? No, that's easy. I love my child way more than I love my husband, right? I'm just, most women, right? Women are intuitive, emotional creatures. That is true. They're intuitively emotional by their nature. That's how God made you. You need emotional attachment. You need some form of affirmation, some form of, of affection, some form of, of love. And so even when you have a child, it's like, I want to give you all of my emotional connection, right? But we have to understand that we're buying into not the agape love. This word here is atro uh, the agape love. Teach young women to agape love their husbands. Agape love is not natural to anyone born of flesh. It is a godly love, and it is only found in pursuit of godliness and having an intimate relationship with God. So why do young women need to be trained how to love their husbands and how to love their children? Because they naturally love their husbands, naturally, intuitively, emotionally, by their very nature, love their children in an emotional, deep, deep capacity. But agape love is not emotional love. Have we not learned this? Right? That would be, you can make an argument for philea love. I'll even take um, the agape for storgi, familial love. But I'm not going to say that's agape love. Agape love su supersedes feelings. It's saying, even when I don't feel it, I choose to love. Right? So the Roman Greco myth of love is a love is a random, uncontrollable force that compels your emotions. That's why it's demonstrated by Cupid. Cupid struck me with an arrow. I can't help it. It's uncontrollable. It's an emotional force. I love this boy so much. I love him. But what does a teenage girl do the next week? I hate them. I wish they were dead. <laughs> Tell me I'm wrong. <laughs> That's not agape love. That's what young women know is emotional love, because they're emotional creatures. And so will their love for their children dissipate? No, it's not going to, but that's still an emotional love. It's not an agape love. So every single woman in this room, they emotionally love the, the, the heck out of their kids, right? We're praying for that. But what is it? Biblical definition, Deuteronomy 6, heart, soul, mind, Matthew 22, also Christ cross-references. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion. It's choosing. It's willfully choosing to love, and it's accompanied by emotion that leads to action on behalf of its object. It's saying, I'm choosing to love you, so I'm moving into a position to love you, and yes, I will allow it to be accompanied by my emotion. But there are times that you do not want to love the person you're with. There are times when you don't want to love your family. Maybe your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife. There are times where emotional love runs dry. Why do you think so many people end in divorce? Because all they have is emotional love. When the emotional love tank is run up, 
I just don't feel like we're connected the way we used to be. I don't feel loved by you anymore. There's just, there's, there's nothing there. I feel like we're friends. That is the love that we're born with. And that's why people divorce all the time. But that is not godly, agape love. And so when I say, and we look at this, and it says, train young women to love their husbands and children, it's saying, train them to not just live in their emotions, rather to choose to love them, to choose and motivate themselves even when they don't feel like it, even when they don't want to, even when they're upset or angry. Choosing to love them to the highest degree. Coming back to this um, fathers and daughters thing, we talk about young women, they dress, the young women dress the way they want because they're yearning for some male attention and affection. Because a lot of fathers develop, um, uh, when a, a young woman develops into a woman, right? And you guys know what I'm saying. Maturation, right, Sophia? She's like, what? I haven't hit that yet. And uh, <laughs> she's still a seven-year-old. When a young woman hits this point where she starts to develop, fathers think, uh, I can't hug you, I can't cuddle with you anymore because you've developed. You've, brought, you've bought into the Roman Greco myth that love is sensuous and driven by emotions and feelings. Agape love says, I'm choosing to love you, I'm choosing to pour my affections on you, not because it has anything to do with how you look, not because it has anything to do with now you've developed, because I love you and I know that you need a hug, and I know that you just want to snuggle on the couch with your dad, right? So we see this problem in America and the culture because they don't rightly identify what love is, and fathers stop cherishing their, their daughters by the time they reach a certain age because now they have a boyfriend and they developed into young women, and I don't want to, I can't cuddle with that. That's inappropriate. Who says? The Bible? Nowhere. It doesn't say it's inappropriate. The culture says it's inappropriate. So it's not a sensuous love. And I'm going to finish this. A lot of first boyfriends meant the dad couldn't let you sit on his lap anymore. So you learned, and you yearned for male affection because your father no longer gave it to you. Because that is how God made you. And the world lied to your dad, so he couldn't give it to you. The culture lied to your dad and says, you can't let her sit on your lap anymore. It's inappropriate now. And so these girls think, well, now all of a sudden my dad... Doesn't let me hug him. Doesn't let me sit on his lap. Fathers, until she gets a husband, she's daddy's girl. <laughs> and you need to let her be daddy's girl. So what happens is this young woman, she wants to find that affu- uh, affection. I almost cursed on accident. Wow. <laughs> I promise that's not what I was trying to say. I was trying to say affection, and uh, you came in there. Affection and attention. <laughs> Just acknowledge it. We're a small church. Um, attention and affection. So they went. They go and find it. Adrian's like, see, I knew he cursed. I knew it. I promise I don't like that word. Um, so you went and found it. So the young woman went and found it. And so she brings home some young child who's irresponsible, sinful, lustful, and just wants her for all the wrong reasons. But he's willing to give her that affection that dad no longer will. So I know that this is about womanhood, but a womanhood is deeply impacted by ruined cultural fatherhood. And we need to be good fathers in order to promote good women, right? So I, want, I, I wanted to stay on that for a second because I think it's just such this important picture to understand that the culture has lied to you about what love is. It isn't some sensuous driven force that you can't control. It's literally agape love. Godly love is choosing to control your will and saying, I will love in spite of how I feel. And I'm praying to God that my feelings start to change. (laughs) And I like what Alistair Bates said about worship. He said, don't ask me how I feel. Ask me what I know. Because if you ask me what I know, you can bet I will praise God with all of my might. All right? You guys like that. (laughs) But if you ask me how I feel, I spilled my coffee, my wife was mad at me, we woke up late, 
My kids are throwing a temper tantrum. Don't ask me how I feel. I'm a little upset with God because of this and this and this and this and this and this. Not really. That's not what he said. But he said, I'm upset. He didn't say I'm upset with God. But he said, I'm upset. Don't ask me how I feel. Don't ask me to worship based on how I feel. Ask me how to worship on what I know. I know that God is good. And that's how we should love. We should love based on what we know, not what we feel. That's right. We should love based on we know that our husbands would lay down their lives for us. And we're going to get into that more next week. But the husbands are called to lay down their lives for their wives. They did. But you, you're not willing to submit to them. This is why it's about being yielded to the Spirit. A wife will submit to her husband gladly because she knows he'll die for her. Sure, husband. Jump in front of that bullet. Love you. Nice. That's some good submission right there. Wait, you canceled our life insurance? Never mind. Come back. <laughs> Just a joke. Um, verse 5, to be self-controlled, to be pure. I, I have to stop on purity. I know I'm preaching long, but please bear with me. Womenhood, this is so important. This message is so important. Purity is not abstaining from sex before marriage. That's not purity. My wife and I talked about it. She's like, we, we need to think about purity some more. Not, not necessarily just in our marriage, just in our culture and our church and everywhere. Purity is not just abstaining from sex before marriage. That's not purity. Men, if you watch pornography, that's not purity in your marriage. Women, men, lust after all these different things going on, that's not purity in your marriage. Purity is choosing to only be with the person you're with, meant to be with in every regard. Even our culture will tell us today, well, how far is too far? Right? You live in Utah. If you don't know the Mormon culture, they do things that are way too far. But it's not the deed, so it's okay. That's Mormon culture. I don't know if you guys know that. There's some really weird things they talk about that they do. Yeah. And I'm like, what are you talking about? That is the deed. <laughs> right? But that's our culture. We're thinking purity is just don't do the deed. And I say that because we have kids here. Don't do the deed. We don't want to say everything else. But everything else, you can do that all the way up to the deed. And that's still pure enough. Right? No, purity is purity. Purity is going, and this might seem extreme, but I'm very, the more I study the word, I'm very into courtship now. <laughs> very into it. More so than dating. Purity is going to the father and saying, may I court your daughter? That's purity. Now, I know that sounds countercultural, and it seems so weird based on our culture, but purity is saying, hey, I, I have a desire for your daughter because she seems like the type of woman I'd like to marry. I'd like to court her. That is a pure relationship, right? You go to her and say, hey, let's hang out and watch Netflix. That's already impure, okay? We're, 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 we're not talking about purity as preventing yourself from doing the deed. That's not purity. That's what your culture tells you purity is. That's not what purity is. Biblical purity is being pure and found blameless before Christ. So no Netflix and chill. Right? The next line, working at home. I'm not going to speak to this too long due to time, but I could. Working at home means nothing supersedes the priority of the home. John MacArthur said some women get so focused on their careers and their jobs and their compensation that their home is no longer a home. It's just where everyone happens to sleep at night. There's no dinner on the table. There's no fun games uh, on Friday night. There's no hanging out with mom. There's no early morning breakfast. There's no Bible studies at four. There's no prayer in the morning. There's nothing. It's not a home. It's just where everyone happens to sleep and then they go about their lives. They send their kids to school and the parents go to work. Working at home. Proverbs 31, if you study that, it doesn't, it doesn't seem to, to imply that women can't have a job. Right? That doesn't seem any to be found anywhere in the Bible. I think it's a great gain that a woman doesn't have a job. I think that is an incredible, great gain, especially primarily if you have children. I think it's the best thing in the world. Best case scenario, wife doesn't work. Wife teaches and trains up the children, makes the home, keeps the home. That's best case scenario. That's not being misogynistic. That's me studying the work. Now, does that mean they can't have their hands in, in tasks and jobs and at-home jobs and doing this and doing that? No, Proverbs 31 makes it sound like a, a good, godly woman is all about all the things. right? So it's not about not having a job. It's about prioritizing your home, prioritizing your children, prioritizing feeding them, prioritizing training them, prioritizing teaching them the Bible, prioritizing evangelizing them, prioritizing your home before anything else. 
And the moment anything else takes a priority over your home, you have missed it. Your home becomes your top priority. Kind and submissive to their own husbands, we see the same word here, that the word of God may not be reviled. This culture, keep in mind, this was giving women way more right and authority than other religions or other people. Women were debased down to nothing, downgraded to nothing in this culture. Yet rather than being, oh, you just have to do whatever he says and he's going to lord over you and you're nothing, he's saying, you are a helpmate. You submit that to them and help them with their agenda and their mission because they would lay down their life for you. It, it's so beautiful. I'm going to go into one last point here. I'm debating if I'm going to go over this. I do want to say this because I think this will excite some people. I'm not doing it for the excitement, but I know, I know my mom would like it. My wife, she wants nothing more in her life than to shape kids who love Christ with all of their being. And my wife said the same exact thing that my mom said, and I've only heard it from two women ever in my life. And it's my mom and my wife, and I'm blessed that that's what I heard. And they both said almost the exact same thing. They said, if I do nothing else with my life but raise kids who love and fear the Lord, then I will be happy. But yet women are like, I just want to make more money than my husband I just want to do this with my life and do that with my life. Godly principles on godly womanhood cares and prioritizes their kids above all else. Now, I'm not saying you can't have other ambitions and hopes and dreams. Proverbs 31 makes that clear. I'm going to reference that, even though we're not talking about that today. It makes it clear. You can have all those other things, but priority number one has to be your kids. It has to be your children. Training them in the word of God. Teaching them to love the Lord their God with all their heart. Teaching them to fear the Lord. You could ask Rachel. She would have never wanted to be a pastor if um, it meant Gabe and I and Sophia never served God. She would have never done. The most important thing to her is that her kids serve the Lord. Right? And so men, you get this cool thing where you get to rise up and you know, be the head of the household and change the world, whatever you want to do. But women, they can shape two, four, six, eight world changers. I mean, if you guys want to have eight kids, by all means. You know, the Word of God says that children are as a quiver full of arrows. Modern culture, Bodhi Bauckham said this, he said, I view my kids as nuclear warheads <laughs> in the kingdom of God. He said, my wife has set aside her ambitions, set aside her cares. She's a, an intelligent woman. She has a degree. She is, I mean, my wife's a nurse. You guys know she is, she is well studied. Bachelor's in nursing. She's really smart. She can make a lot of money, more money than I can make by a mile. Okay? But we're talking through this, and I'm like, how can I get you home more? Because I want you to train Luke up to be a nuclear warhead in the kingdom of God. That is the call of my wife. And that's what her heart is. That's where her heart is. And so he said, I'm raising up nuclear warheads. So my wife gets to raise up four kingdom builders, four kingdom shakers. I'm just one. So who has a more important job? I would argue a wife. Especially if you have many kids. I think we forget that we're in a war. If you're in a war, you want some nuclear warheads on your side. But when we just fail our kids time and time again, you're not raising up nuclear warheads. Raising up little Nerf bullets. <laughs> just saying, moms, what do you want to raise up? You want to raise up kingdom shakers that are nuclear warheads for the kingdom of Christ? Or do you want to raise up Nerf bullets that can be picked up and shot by the other side too? Right? The, the reality is the curse of woman, uh, and I'm not going to get into this too much, but Genesis chapter 3 said that the curse of woman was that she will, her desire will be to, to lord over her husband. Right? That would be her desire. Her desire would be to lord over her husband. The same thing um, in chapter 4 verse 16 is where I believe it is. When, uh, I believe it's Cain, I, I should have just put it in my notes, but I'm just thinking about it. 
The same way um, that sin wished, or Satan wished to, or the demonic wished to, um, lord over. And I think sin's probably the best translation of that. But the same way sin wished to lord over Cain is the same way a woman wishes to lord over her husband, Eve, over Adam. That's a curse. So it's not in your nature to submit. I get that. And you think, oh, no, my nature is to submit. I'm a very submissive person. Nobody likes that language, by the way. <laughs> but the reality is, it is against your nature. Your nature is not to just say, okay, okay, dear. Right? And I'm not saying there's not give and take. Please don't misunderstand me. My wife and I, we hash things out, and uh, I don't make decisions without consulting her. She is my best consultant. She is my wisest, wisest confidant. But at the end of the day, the decision is mine to be made. Right? And I think that's the, the, dif- the distinction we need to recognize. And so all in all, what I want to say, biblical womanhood is you are to be reverent, to be kind, to be submitted to your husband, to be raising up kingdom shakers, kingdom movers. We should be about our homes. We should be making the home. We should be taking care of the home. We should be loving the work in which we do, not because we emotionally are driven by it, because emotions are part of it. And we're going to get into men and their stoic, stoic natures next week and how that's, that's a curse too. Women need emotional husbands, and yet husbands are like, well, I'm just stoic. No, you're not. You stub your toe, I'll see some emotions. <laughs> right, Steve? Steve's like, I'm stoic. Was he stoic when he stubbed his toe? Or does he only do the <laughs> Or does he choose to only let out the emotions he wants to let out? Men, you can let out your emotions for your wives because they need it. They need affection, they need attention, they are emotional beings. My wife is all the time complaining that I'm too weepy and I'm too emotional, you know, but hey, at least I'm not too stoic. I don't think you could be with someone too stoic. (laughs) She's like, I don't know. Maybe I could. (laughs) I want to encourage you guys that uh, we, you know, we hit women today. um, And hopefully you were, some of of this stayed in there, you know, and just study it for yourself. Really study it and, and realize that being submitted to someone who's willing to die for you is not a bad thing. An example I didn't put in here that I'll reference now is, Maybe I did put it in here. If I did, I want to have it. And I'm closing after this, I promise. I, really, I do promise. I didn't put it in here, so. I might have it in my other notes, so. And if I do. So if I say this, a highly educated woman This is from Bodhi as well. Highly educated woman employing her education for the benefit of her husband. She will not, the wife will not contradict her husband in public. The wife is committed and submitted to uh, herself, to her husband's vision for the cause, but not for her own. The wife has forsaken all other opportunities for self-fulfillment for the sake of partnering with her husband and helping his ambition. That seems misogynistic. But you put it into the context of, say, even our president and vice president right now. And I know you guys probably don't want me to talk about Biden, but bear with me. Kamala Harris, you guys probably won't even like these examples, <laughs> knowing you guys. Kamala, Kamala Harris is a highly educated woman employing her education for the benefit of President Biden. You see how that language in a marriage seems misogynistic, but it seems you put it in the case of our presidents, and it's like, well, yeah, she should do that. You know, Kamala Harris doesn't contradict Biden in public. Well, she shouldn't. We'd have a uh, media meltdown. Um, Harris has committed and submitted herself to Biden's vision for the country and not her own. Right? You don't want a president and a vice president to not be on the same page. You want a helpmate, a supporter. Um, and she has forsaken all other opportunities for self-fulfillment for the sake of partnering with Biden and helping the agenda, right? And we, we know the agenda is counter-biblical, right? So she's using her smarts to attack Christianity. Um, but needless to say, the point is the same, that people like to look at the Word of God and think, this is misogynistic. But you apply these principles in a workplace and say, here's your boss and here's your assistant manager, and be like, wow, this is really good advice, Right? But we don't like to look at it that way. So I'm closing in prayer. Um, I rambled. Sorry, Elijah, made you work for it today. 
you know what you're looking for in a wife now? Now, Elijah, hopefully you know. And if you don't know, I will send you the link to this Facebook video and you can rewatch it. And I will send you links to um, other sermons and other resources in which this is what the Bible says you're looking for. Okay? If you bring home a girl, uh, and you're not going to bring her home to me, but if you bring her home to Jarrell, I'll tell him. Okay? I'm telling him. He's probably listening right now. You bring home a girl, looks like she shops at Poochie Mama's R Us. <laughs> and she says, yeah, me and Elijah have been real close. We've been watching a lot of Netflix lately. She's done. She's out. Okay? I'm just speaking the, the teenager's language right now. And you may think, this is an impossible case. How am I supposed to find this woman? You're not supposed to find her. Um, you are supposed to become the person God has created you to be, and then he'll bring her to you. Don't go find her. You're not going to find her. God's going to bring her to you when you're who you're supposed to be. Okay? I think that's something, when you're listening to this, to not forget, is you're not looking for this as much as you're looking for yourself. So women, you're trying to model this and become this, and men, you're going to get beat up next week and the week after, okay? Yeah. So... Heavenly Father, I thank you for the opportunity to open the Word of God together. I pray that we can uh, grow from this as a church, that we can just kind of take this model of biblical womanhood um, into our marriage primarily, God. We're, we're really focusing on the marriage and focusing on the family this month unintentionally. Over the next several weeks, we're going to be talking about fathers and then Father's Day. And then after that, we have children and their submittedness to their parents. So the month of June, unintentionally, but by your intention and your providence, God, is the month of the family and focusing on biblical family. So God, I pray that you have your way through the, through the duration of our lives and through, through this church's life. And, and whatever you have for us, I got, God, I just pray that we continue in that um, for your glory and your, for, for your kingdom and for your purposes, God, that we may submit ourselves to you. In Jesus' name, amen. As always, thanks for checking us out. We appreciate you and hope to see you next week. God bless.